I realize your guys' show is for the lore, which means I can actually for the lore, and it almost <laughs> works. <laughs> You're listening to For the Lore, the podcast that delves into the craft of our favorite games, whether lore, gameplay, or game design. Joining Roger is Joe, writer from WoW Insider and World of Maticus, and Vince from Massive Nerd. Everybody and welcome to episode 106 of For the Lore. Once again, uh, Roger's taking a bit of a break. Just things won't leave him alone. Uh, last I heard, he was lumbering into bed to go crash for a day or two. But anyway, I'm going to be hosting again this week. This is Vince along with Joe. What's up, buddy? Oh, you know, same old, same old. Full of piss and vinegar, as the case were. Cats in the Christmas tree. Cats in the Christmas tree. <laughs> All right, we're going to start off uh, this week with some Guild Wars 2 stuff, because this past week they announced the pre-orders and all that fun stuff starting up on April 10th. And as is pretty much normal these days, you pre-order the game, you get into the betas, which they haven't said when those are starting yet, have they? Nope, but they're going to be starting pretty damn soon, is my guess. Mm -hmm. I know they've been doing closed betas and stuff going on, but uh, not the full fun time betas just yet. But... They did announce a couple separate editions. Uh, you want to tackle those real quick? Absolutely. Well, first off, we are going to have the, what everybody I'm sure is absolutely enthralled with, the collector's edition, which will be a buck fifty, <sighs> $149.99. And why is it $149.99, you might ask? Because it comes with a 10-inch statue of the iconic Rightlock Brimstone and his sword, Sohathen. Now, honestly... I'm really not a fan of a whole lot of, like, statues and games. I like them, but I'm not really that into them. This is a must-have for me, and this is the first time I've said this about a damn statue. This thing <laughs> looks gorgeous, and it is an iconic character. I have to have it. Um, you also get a custom frame with five Guild Wars 2 art prints. Um, actual art prints, not shitty ones that like came with the Mass Effect 3, but we'll get into that later, I'm sure. Uh, a book on the making of Guild Wars 2, a soundtrack CD, five in-game items, including a mini Rightlock. Um, that's the collector's edition. Then you have the digital deluxe edition, uh, which is pre-purchase. It's going to run you $80, and it, it's basically a lot of the, the extra stuff, the extra items and things like that. Uh, and then you have the standard edition, which is the $60 um, and it's like you would expect any other video game. Um, you get your small pre-order bonuses. Uh, you get a head day, a one day head start. I said they have three days on the website actually. Was it three days? Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. Even still, three days is not that much. I've had three day head starts before. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that big of a deal. Uh, but I think the price points and the fact that they're offering different prices and different packages, I think that's going to become the standard now. I don't know about you. I'm excited. I'm definitely getting the collector's edition. I will drop $150 on this game. No, I, I, I don't need statues. Sorry. 
<laughs> I've passed on Batman. I've passed on giant trolls. I have no problem passing on this thing. Uh, I can't. I can't. It's in my blood. <laughs> well, as we all know, Guild Wars 2 is not going to have a monthly subscription fee for a full MMO. And while they did have microtransactions in, Guild, in the first Guild Wars, as they said, it was kind of an afterthought. Whereas Guild Wars 2 is designed with microtransactions in mind. And I have no problem with that. I mean, they got to make money somehow. I prefer this to, you know, if they're not going to charge the monthly fee, what else are they going to do, right? Well, the other thing that makes me really excited about it is what is going to be offered in the microtransaction. In particular, that the, the Plex-type system that they're going to be implementing. Mm-hmm. Anybody who's played EVE Online, for those few select of you that listen to the show that do, um, it has a system where you can actually purchase money through the company for in-game use. What Guild Wars 2 is going to do is it's going to have uh, different stuff. You're going to have um, gold, which is like the standard commodity that you can do whatever. You're going to have an untradeable karma points, which you can use for special items. And then you're going to have a third currency that you can use in-game that you can purchase directly through the microtransactions. Honestly, I really, really, really like that. Because, one, it's going to help cut down on gold spammers. Every game that comes out, every new game, you always have to deal with the gold spammers. Why? They can offer you, you don't want to work for that? Sweet, pay us money, we'll give you gold. Here, they're saying, we're going to offer you currency that's only available through the system that you can purchase if you want. Now, those items that are going to be available with it are not going to be exclusively just for the Plex, so to speak. But it's just something that they can... It gives them wiggle room, essentially, and helps them cut out uh, something that is plaguing MMOs in general. I'm excited for it. I used the Plex system for EVE. I thought it was fantastic. It gave a little extra, you know, sort of leeway when I had an extra $20 that I wasn't doing anything with and I wanted to just, you know, get some more stuff to go farm ice. It was great. Add another column to your spreadsheet. Add another column to my spreadsheet. And that spreadsheet was gorgeous, thank you. (laughs) But this makes sense, too, especially for the game, especially when you are a free-to-play game and you don't have that monthly subscription, how you're going to rely on those microtransactions. It's a great way to entice people to spend some money but not make it absolutely necessary. I think it's great. Yeah, they they, they mentioned that the gems are going to be for account services, I guess, you know, transfers and re... uh redesigns your character and that sort of stuff but they also said time saving convenience items so i'm guessing it's like experience scrolls and that's okay because oh, as they said it's never okay for players who spend money to have an unfair advantage over players so they're not selling power i'm, I'm okay with them selling a little convenience so absolutely you know, i'm okay with that as well if i have a crap ton of gold sitting around i have no problem trading that for some gems and spending that on experience scrolls <laughs> exactly all right well the other big MMO in the room right now is, of course, World of Warcraft. And uh, late, was it Sunday night, right? They released the press NDA on Mists of Pandaria. Oh, yeah. And I swear, I'm watching my Twitter Monday morning as I'm eating breakfast. I thought people were joking about some of this stuff. I was like, oh, they're having fun, you know, coming up with fake stuff. No, that was all actual things. <laughs> there was quite a bit in there. Uh, I mean, where do you begin? Uh, first of all, you 
we're going to talk about the big story element, right? Yeah. One of the big announcements was that the way that they're going to package this expansion is going to be different from every other version of the game they've put out before. Essentially, from the time you buy Missa Pandera, that that box is going to contain one complete story. That digital download is one complete story arc from front to finish. It is not going to be one where you have to wait for release content or for content releases to continue the story like you have in every other expansion or every other gameplay experience. What they're doing is it allows them to satisfy lore and story in a very succinct way. And they can also then expand upon that. And what they want to do is they want to make those content expansions sequels. So you don't have to wait to get to the end. You don't have to wait to fight Deathwing for a year and worry about the story and the lore in between there. Because now it's just going to be a separate part of the story. To me, that's fantastic. As, as the primary focus of the show is the story, giving me everything about that one particular story arc in one glomp is fantastic. It also means that the content's going to be slightly more episodic, which means we're going to get potentially more updates at regular intervals. That's phenomenal as well. Yeah, now, the way I understand it is they were saying like the first half of the expansion was going to be dealing specifically with the Pandarans, and then it was going to transition into a more Horde versus Alliance storyline. Well, here's what's good. here's what they have proposed. The beginning of the expansion is you know, the discovery of the Pandarans, discovery of the, the turtle uh, island that moves, discovery of their home continent. It's that entire realm of discovery and integration, right? From that point, they're going to take the story a step further, and now it's going to be engaging the war. So now you're going to have uh, all those sort of escalated things that have happened over the course of learning the Pandarans, uh, finding their existence, meeting them at the exact same time your counterpart did, and now all hell's going to break loose. And you're going to see the effects that you have on the world between expansions, so or between content updates. Also, that, that's also a kind of a big point, too, is each content update is going to change the world with it as well. So there's going to be visible effects between each one. It's not just going to be, oh, here's a, a smattering of heroics to play with. No, the story will progress between them. It's going to make you actually care about that content interesting and of course it's all culminating with the big attack on orgrimmar which has a lot of people really excited well i mean to be honest let's think about it they have a absolute perfect scape orc at this point <laughs> they absolutely despise garrosh most people hate garrosh I know people that are diehard horde that would rather have basic campfire for Warchief over Garrosh. Why? Garrosh is a weird character that, that was necessary and is necessary in this part of the story, but he's not very cool, right? He's not the Warchief we want. He's the Warchief not... we deserve. <laughs> <laughs> and I would agree with that. But there's so many things that are left unresolved at that point, right? One, you have Bane Bloodhoof, who still owes Garrosh a blood debt at this point. He killed his father. Even even with the trickery involved from the Grim Totem, he did challenge him to a fight to the death. I mean, he went in there expecting to kill him. So that's you can't forgive him for that, really. Um, also, you have to have taken into effect that Bane is a very strong leader right now with an ancient dwarven relic, a legendary item that has chosen him. 
you better damn well tell me that he's probably <laughs> going to be the new war chief. I mean, they set this thing up a, a year and a half, two years ago now. Come on. Well, but, I don't know. I, I think we need to set up a betting pool. I'm just curious what the odds are on Varian, because I'll put 20 bucks down on that. That he'll be the new war chief? Yes. I don't – which is Listen, interesting. It's, it's, I it's, it's about a dark that. horse long shot. I'll take it. <laughs> but there's – I have a theory about that as well. We'll get to that in a moment. Um but it's a perfect opportunity to have something that hasn't been done, a full raid on a capital city, um, which we've done in PvP realms. I mean, we drop out of the sky and just wreck Agrimar on a regular basis on my server. Why? It's fun. But you have something where both sides have a common enemy at that point, right? And they even said it at BlizzCon 2011, one side is going to have to be, there's going to be a reckoning for the war crimes that one of the sides commits. Which of those is more likely to commit the war crime? That's debatable, but Garrosh seems like a very likely suspect. Fighting him and taking him down in that sort of story arc and going after him and doing that raid on Agrimar is going to be an epic event. It's not just going to be a single epic event. It's going to be a massive event with ripe with plot and tying up loose ends. And it's going to prove to be fantastic content. Now, the pendulum does swing both ways, and I wouldn't be surprised if before the end of this expansion, we see a raid on Stormwind for the, you know, dethroning of Varian Red. Okay. That's going to be, I, I think we're going to see that, and I think his son is going to be the one to lead that charge. Works for me. That's that's my theory. All right. Uh, what about the Pandarans? What do we get on them? I saw the female model. I, I'm pleasantly surprised. I was expecting I not that. I am so happy with the female Pandera model, it's not even funny. First of all, it is not the stereotypical fantasy female model. They're pear-shaped. They are not hourglass-shaped. And if you look at all of the female models that you've had in the past, even for the monstrous races, they're curvy, but they're curvy in the classic hourglass. They have a bust, they have a narrow waist, and they have hips. Even the undead follow this form in their hunched, you know, boniness. Pandaren females are not. They are pear-shaped. They are fat-bottom girls, and I am so happy about that. <laughs> I also like the fact that you have a choice in how you make them. One of the things that people were complaining about is all of the art that was coming out for the Pandarens was red foxes, red foxes, red foxes, red foxes. Um, or red pandas, excuse me. But basically foxes, not bears. Completely different species. People are up in arms about it. I happen to like red pandas. I was okay with it. But now they give you a choice at character creation. You can choose to be a regular, you know, Pandaren's typical black and white, or you can be the red panda. So you have a choice at character creation on top of it, which is fantastic to me. That also goes along with adding further depth to character creation across the board. With the inclusion of the monk class, it's also forcing them to update the character models for all of the other base races, because everybody can be a monk which means everybody's getting brand new animations, which means updated character models. They're going to be able to add further character customization. This means we might finally get to see our wild hammer tattoos on dwarven, uh, you know, dwarves every shape and size. We might get further variation among the undead. So it's really kind of an exciting time to, to make alts and to sort of experience that character creation. And if that wasn't enough, you're getting an 11th character slot on all of your servers. 11 character slots, 11 classes. Not coincidence. It's just character creation from the get-go is just getting overhauled and done 
fantastically for mists. Okay. So speaking of that 11th character slot, what can we expect from Poder? Poder will be a female red panda monk whose primary focus will be tanking with a little dabbling in healing. Unless the healing is so exciting that it might make me hang up my shaman reins. And yes, looking at the healing stuff that they have set aside for the monks, there's a strong possibility that might come to pass. And I hate to say that. <laughs> but we got we also got to look at the full gamut so far, or at least the, the alpha stage of the monk talents and the monk spells and abilities for their various their various aspects. Uh, and as we know, they're going to be able to fill all three roles. Tanks, melee, DPS, rate, four roles essentially, range, DPS, and then healing. The healing, though, is what interests me the most because the tanking is, is really ridiculously cool. It's the drunken monk <laughs> uh, style tanking. You have everything from your, your bob and weave to like the drunken stance to the staggering, which is fantastic. But the healing is an active healing model. It is something where you have to take your Jade Serpent statues and essentially place them like Lightwells in the raid, get into combat somehow, deal damage to trigger healing effects. You still have you know straight heals, you still have stuff that you can use your resources for, um, but at the same point, you're rewarded for actively healing. And we're talking about doing things other than just sit there and click a health bar, click a button, click a health bar, click a macro... No, you have to be in the thick of things. You have to have exceptional uh, situational awareness. And I think it's going to breathe a, a much-needed new life into healing in World of Warcraft, especially when you compare how that healing stacks up against healing in games like Terra, where healing is phenomenally fun, where it's completely off the wall. It's not just clicking you know, unit icons somewhere on the screen. It's actively participating in the combat. They're doing the same thing. And it's going to be different, it's going to be fresh, it's going to be... I think it's going to be absolutely amazing. Okay. It does. It definitely does seem cool, and it would at least be a style of healing that I would be more interested in, because, you know me, I'm not a fan of uh, green bar whack-a-mole. But, give me an enemy to punch, and hey, if people get healed while I'm doing it, that could be an option. Uh, some other things that I heard, saw a lot of people talking about uh, we can run down real quick. Uh, level 90, School of Mance, and Scarlet Monastery. Yes, Scarlet Mon uh, Skullamance in particular is being almost completely, it's completely reworked. Um, Harada is gone. He is gone. All of the people in the Scarlet Monastery, you've killed them, they're dead. The only one that is sort of surviving is White Mane, and not in the form that we know her. We didn't really get to see her. We got to see kind of a, a precursor model. Um, but instead of Harad, we have Harmon, the arms master, um, which... I think is interesting looking. He's got all the classic Harad gear, except he has two shoulders instead of one. You bastards. Um, <laughs> but it's cool because they're updating it to show that we've been basically destroying and raising this place for seven years. So it's time for it. A we've little become bit exceedingly efficient at it. <laughs> yes, we have, but it's getting that complete overhaul. Skullamance as well. And there, we, there was a, a, com a comment about Lillian Voss She's a, a character in lore that's been involved for quite a while. She may be involved in Skullamance, possibly as a boss after getting possessed. We don't know. So there's a little bit up in the air about of it at this point. But the redesigns look amazing. The way that everything's been sort of moved around in each zone, the way that it's been divided out, it makes logical sense. Uh, it makes it easier to explore. And it's absolutely just 
it's gorgeous. It's a gorgeous redesign and a gorgeous reimagining of what have become staples of that game. And of course, the 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 big butt of a lot of the jokes is World of Warcraft: The Farmville Edition. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I'm actually okay with that. And the reason I'm okay with that is because a lot of people hate gathering professions, right? But they're necessary, and they're necessary for some aspects of the game. I hate going out in the world and herbing. I have an herbalist. I have an alchemist. I despise going out into the world and having to, like, fight with other people. Having my own farm where I can do it on my own time and in my own leisure really appeals to people like me. Because I want to spend my time raiding or experiencing, you know, various different aspects of combat. I don't want to spend my time gathering. I think it offers a fantastic opportunity to allow me to explore that type of the profession and and kind of do it at leisure without all the frustration and feeling the need that I have to sink dozens of hours to compete with other people to get my resources. And while it's gotten better over the years, I think this is a fantastic move on their part. So I can raise my own herbs and cooking ingredients. What about raising cattle for skinning or prospecting yes. my my uh, plot of land for ore? Is that an option? That is what they're saying is that there's going to be consideration for all involved. Consideration. So my <laughs> understand, I, I which usually means that they haven't planned but haven't implemented it yet. Okay. So, so that's my theory. I mean, this was a huge, huge info dump. So anything else I'm kind of passing up on that's mildly important? Well, um, let me see here. I'm going through all the lists. Siege of Agrimar, UI updates. Dungeons and challenge modes. I want to spend a little bit of time on that real quick. Um, basically, dungeons and challenge modes. Challenge modes are something that are being added to Dungeons and Heroics that make you do it in a certain way to add sort of replayability into these zones, whether it's the speed with which you complete it, complete it in a certain manner, things like that. And you get rewards, it's like a ranking system. And the better you do at it compared to everybody else, you get medals, bronze, silver, or gold. Um, it rewards you with like transmog gear, special gear with no stats whatsoever, but can be used to transmog other gear. Uh, they're also talking about giving you things like taking those coins that you're earning, taking those medals that you're earning, and being able to convert into things like mounts. In this case, they're talking about the Kirin mount, which is essentially the Chinese chimera, um, which I think is absolutely fantastic. They're also, uh, speaking of gear, they're talking about revamping the way that gear is earned and purchased now. Uh, Valor points will potentially be used to upgrade gear instead of just buying gear outright. Um, essentially something very similar to how the Old Republic does it so that you can keep gear longer instead of just having to constantly replace it with the next tier. So I think that when we don't have a whole lot of information on it right now, it's just kind of like a, a caveat where they said, you know, we're, this is what we're looking at right now. But I think that's absolutely fantastic as well because it gives us uh, all something a little more to look forward to and makes it still accessible to people without dumping it down completely and allowing you to, again, further customize your character beyond just simply transmog. Mm -hmm. So that's about it then? That's about it that I got. Any hints of a release window? Beta's probably going to be soon. If I had a hazard, I guess I'm going to guess probably end of summer. Okay. Well, one thing we did get a release, not just window, an actual date from finally was Diablo 3 coming out May 15th, which is pretty close. I guess yanking out that PvP feature like you're we talking about uh, really sped up their cycle there. 
Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the only problem is, man, that's that's right in that same Terra time, too. I, I, ha- I have to believe that was on purpose. I think so, too. Um, I really I really can't say much more about it, but I mean, it definitely is one of those things where they're feeling the crunch and they're kind of doing some things that I don't think they were ready to do, but have to do. Mm-hmm. I, I know this, that's going to be tough for me. I mean, still playing Star Wars when I have the time and I'm not sleeping on the couch lately. I have Terra coming out, have Diablo out at the same time. Somebody please pay us for this, please. Seriously. <laughs> don't don't even have to pay us much. Just just cover my bills. Give give me a hot pocket every now and then. <laughs> I'm a little more expensive. You got to buy me a beer. <laughs> All right, you're getting an MGD. You're not getting that fancy beer. Ah, oh, damn. Okay. Fine. <laughs> All right. Well, actually, while we're talking about Terra, there's a big stink going on about some Terra outfits. Like, I actually wasn't able to pull up much information on it because apparently on mass is kind of taking a tight rein on this because it's basically blown up the forums. So I I really have Here's... no don't have much of an idea of what's going on at this point. As a frequent uh, visitor to the Enmas Terra forums, uh, what's been going on is the uh, Enrin, the basically the little girl furry things. Um, their outfits were considered way too anime-ish. Um, basically, people were bitching because they felt like it was uh, ripe for sexual advances that were unneeded. Uh, trying to think of a polite way to say it, but essentially, read general chat like... during the beta, and you'll realize they were right. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of jokes about that. There were a lot of comments about that. There were a lot of comments about tentacle porn. So what they did is they actually went back and they redid all of the art investment, all of the armor for the Elrin. And they did a fantastic job. Like we're talking, they took skimpy little tiny schoolgirl outfits and turned them into like full ball gowns of armor, like really cool stylized armor. And that's absolutely fantastic. And they released these art assets, said, here's the look of the new armor. And it just blew me away because, first of all, they look fantastic. They don't fit the traditional uh, female uh, fantasy armor that you see everywhere else where it's like skimpy plate mail, uh, which means they're actually paying attention to the outcry about this and spending time with the art team to change a considerable amount of pixels at this point. Uh, to accommodate that mentality. And I think that's fantastic. So what was the big thing going on on the forums? <laughs> People were complaining about the, the the outfits, which they put a tight lip on. It was one of those things where people got to speak their piece, and then it got fixed. And the problem with the fixing is, now everybody has an opinion about what they should have for armor. So while it's got improved, and the general, the general consensus is thumbs up, now everybody wants to be a designer and is trying to offer things like, gotcha. oh, it should be this color. That so they're kind of saying, hey, look, we understand this is nothing big, you know, to worry about right now. We have time to fix other stuff later. Do you have any other concerns that are pressing on a PC level? Thank you. Let's move on. <laughs> like so, so, some of what I saw was everybody else complaining that their armor wasn't as cool as the Elon armor. <laughs> that happens a lot too. I mean, come on. Like, oh, the you redesigned stuff. theirs, redesigned ours too. Yeah. So there's a lot of outcry for that as well. But that said, Papori Lancer armor is still the best. Continuing on. <laughs> you have your little panda brigade. Okay. Well, and now we have uh, Star Wars The Old Republic. This has been a big time for 1.2 and massively actually had some nice hands-on thoughts about the actual changes. You know, the Guild Summit was just a lot of slideshows and, hey, look at this. But this is people who have actually touched it and played it and held it and sniffed it. And I'm going too far with that. 
the first thing right off the bat, <laughs> the first thing right off the bat, and the number one most asked for change in the game is the UI, and it looks like they have gone whole hog with the customization. They've actually followed a suit similar to how uh, Champions Online allowed you to customize it, which makes me really happy. They've break they've broken it down into individual elements and allowed you to do things like move them around, resize them. Um, it's fantastic to me because I want to customize the shit out of that interface. <laughs> okay, like it, it's I'm one of those people who I'm not terribly uh, an interface person, so a little tweak here and there, I'll be happy. And we also had the uh, the new Flashpoint, the Lost Island, which is actually part two of the Rise of the Rakul storyline. And this was some pretty crazy stuff they're talking about. Uh, how it, the the source of the infection has been traced to this lab on Ord Mantell. And basically, this bad scientist kind of has an island of Dr. Moreau thing going on. <laughs> I think it's just cool. I mean, it just looks really awesome. Like, it just looks menacing. And I don't know about you, but I'm a little little worried to step foot on that island. Yeah, rack versions of local wildlife. Yep. I want to see it, but from a distance. <laughs> rack cool vine cats. <laughs> Go fuck yourself at that point. <laughs> so that one looks pretty cool. And uh, the planet Denova is actually, they're saying, being brought into the game in a big way. Uh, not only is that the site of the upcoming Operation Explosive Conflict, but it's also the new war zone, Novare Coast. And I really liked what they were talking about with this war zone, how it's the Battle of Alderaan taken to another level. It's the same concept of capture points and bunkers with health and this and that, but accelerated because first of all all the capture points are much closer together so there's gonna be a lot more running back and forth a lot more trading fast frantic action and it's really important because you can't just reach that point where you're like okay we have enough of a lead let's just defend our one node because the shields on the bunkers now regenerate and they regenerate at the same speed that one cannon can take them down from so if you're just taking that turtle standpoint near the end of the game you can still lose. I really like that change. It's a quality of life improvement for PvP, right? And it's a good one. PvP in, in, in SOTOR is amazingly fun. I will freely say that. And it's not just because I'm a mercenary and can snipe people from a long distance. It's just a lot of fun in general. And sort of adding that in so people can't cheese the system is phenomenal. Thank you guys for that. Seriously, Bioware, thank you. I'm not going to say so much it's cheesing the system, but in a situation where that would happen on Alderaan, it at least gives the losing team a chance to catch up where they wouldn't have it before. Yeah, you have the underdog play, which is nice. It's nice to have that. Well, there's a certain point in PvP everywhere where you hit a certain point, and you're like, I don't have to do anything else. We've already won. And it's something that I've seen not just in, in Star Wars PvP, but also in like World of Warcraft PvP, because I've been doing Raid to Battlegrounds as well. And in certain things like a Wrathy Basin or anything that has like a resource count, you get to a point and you just stop doing whatever because you know you've already won. I like the idea that you have to be on your toes as defense. You are never 100% safe. I like that because it feels more like war. Because in war, you're never 100% safe. It just doesn't happen. So I'm really happy about that because it means people aren't going to be just forgetting about it at a certain point or just walking away and saying, oh, we already won. Ah. No, you have to be engaged to the bitter end, and that makes me very, very happy. Mm -hmm. And we also got uh, some nice data mining of the character models for the new tiers of PvP and raiding gear. I'll say it's better than the current tier. 
<laughs> that's about all I can say, though. I, I... I like the bounty hunter one. <laughs> Maybe it kind of non-committally. Some parts of it look cool. <laughs> I, I like I like the black hole mod tech campaign stuff. Yeah, I like that one. I like that set of armor. The other two, eh, they're okay. The rest of them, though, man, I feel bad for like Jedi Consulars and stuff, man. <laughs> I love that Jedi Consular PVE set. It's oh here's your epic suit of armor. It's basically a monk robe. <laughs> it is. It is like the Diablo three monk outfit. Like I'm looking at it, I'm like, R- really? That's that's epic art. What? I mean, don't get me wrong. I understand that you know they they spend a lot of time and and, and effort putting in the the resources and the art assets. And that's great, and I applaud them. In some cases, it looks really cool. Sith warrior is actually I like the Sith warrior outfit because mm-hmm. it looks menacing. It looks like something you expect on a Sith warrior. The trooper, it looks like sets of armor that you could possibly see on troops in the field. Imperial agent stuff, not so much. They, smuggler, they have no idea just, what to do with the agent and smuggler at this point. Like, how can we make this I, yeah. this slim, you know, leather armor be cool? Let's just stick some more cameras on it. Here, here, here you want to know how to make slim leather armor look cool? Go back and watch a bunch of John Wayne films. Go back and watch a a bunch of Westerns and look at the leather trench coats and the outfits they wear and then apply that to Smuggler. Why? Because a Smuggler's a freaking cowboy in space. That's what he is. I guarantee you if they make the top tier Smuggler outfit, Captain Mal, nobody will complain. (laughs) Also true. If you give me a brown coat outfit, I'll be very happy as well. And not that I have any hope of ever obtaining the gear, but looking at the Inquisitor gear, because that's what I play, the PvP gear looks kind of cool. Like, I don't know, the headdress is better than the current ones, but that's yeah, the that's thing. I, I don't know what I'm looking at. <laughs> the, the weird scythes that are unbalanced, like, maybe for the, the, the assassin spec, but definitely not a sorcerer look going on there. No, sadly, no. All right. Now, one thing I would say that I'm really, really excited about with patch 1.2, the droids are going to be shutting the fuck up. <laughs> they're they're actually making it so that when you go into your ship, those droids are not always going to assault you with some inane bullshit, which makes me happy because they were rapidly approaching Corso rig status with me. <laughs> And just finishing up our MMO roundup for this episode, we have a little bit of information on Copernicus, which is the code name for the Kingdoms of Amalur MMO. Did Todd McFarlane do it again? Because he leaked out uh, the Reckoning release date. At this point, it's friggin' planned, man. There's no way this has <laughs> slipped out. This is this is them saying, hey, you did it before. It worked really well for us. Do it again. That's exactly what this is. And a lot of people are wondering, you know, is, is it too soon and this and that? But I personally, I say strike while the iron's hot before people forget about Reckoning because there's a lot of other games that are going to come out and Reckoning being that new IP, regardless of how good it is, is going to get lost in the background behind stuff like uh, the new Call of Duty and Bioshock mm-hmm. Infinite and all that stuff. And it's not like they've thrown the game together. You have to remember, Big Huge Games was an entire separate studio from the rest of 38. So they were working on Reckoning. Everybody else was still at work on Copernicus. So it's entirely possible they have something resembling a complete game at this point. 
Well, with them hoping to release it later in this year, potentially, they damn well better. But, I mean, they already have the system in place. They already have the engine. They already have a lot of that stuff already worked out with how the... And this is from personal experience. Scripting NPCs when you don't know the engine is a pain in the fucking balls. I can attest to this from firsthand attempts to do so for somebody else's video game. It's not fun. But when you own the system, you know the system, you've successfully implemented it in the system, you can refine it, make it easier, and then carry it over to your next game. Literally, Kingdoms of Amalur is already pretty much ready to be an MMO. It just needs that extra stuff put in. And if the team was, or if Big Huge Games was already working on it, or, or 38 Studios was already working on it, at the time where Kingdoms of Amalur was released, I fully believe that we'll see this game released by the end of the year. Okay. Well, that's it for the MMOs, and we have... All right, it's time to talk about Mass Effect 3. (laughs) (coughs) Oh, sorry, that was... That was how I feel about everybody bitching about that friggin' ending. Yeah, because it has reached... I don't even have a word for the epic levels of a clusterfuck this has become at this point. I mean... People using Child's Play Charity to kind of give some sort of weight to their flat-out bitching at this point. I'm just going to go with that. It FTC complaints. People filing FTC complaints yeah. to the Federal Trade Commission saying that BioWare lied to them and that they should be fined, etc. It... Okay. I finished the game this weekend. While I do admit there are some faults with the ending, it in no way diminished my appreciation of the previous 35 hours I spent in this game or the previous 100-ish hours across all three, and that's just on that one character. Like I said last week, there is plenty of resolution along the way to the ending. You get that closure. You see all the consequences of your actions across all three games before you get to that end point. Do I think that actual end point could have been executed a little better? Probably. But that's an opinion. You're allowed to not like the ending. What you're not allowed to do... I don't want to say allowed, but... What's a pretty dick move to do is to constantly berate the company that made the ending and demand for them to change it. There's a word for that, and it's called entitlement. I have I have something to say about this. For the past... I've beat the game. I have actually played the game. I have beat the game. I'm on playthrough number two. Part of the reason that I, I made it a point to play the game and I, it was because people were already bitching about the ending a day after it was released. And it got to me. And it got to me because in my gaming group, there's at least 30 people playing this game. And every single one of them that beat it, with a handful, like a handful of exceptions, were complaining about it. I've actually had to sit down with these people on Mumble and explain the ending to them. I fully believe that the people that are so outspoken about this are entitled children. And I emphasize children because it's a classic sci-fi ending. All three of them are classic sci-fi endings. Also, without giving anything away, while you're playing this game, consider the fact that two years ago, they said that this is the final chapter of Shepard's story. This is not the end of the Mass Effect universe. 
There will be other games released in this universe. There will be other people of interest that are followed or that are focused on. The IP itself is not going anywhere. So you have to take into consideration that they want to keep this this universe alive. Barely. <laughs> no matter how it is, no matter how it is. But if you're going to have Shepard's story, which is a pretty massive fucking story, come to a resolution of any kind, how do you do that but still give yourself opportunity to explore other aspects of it? And that's not an easy thing to do. And with that in mind, they did a damn good job as far as I'm concerned. The endings, there were some things that I didn't like about them. Sure. There are some things that I think could have been executed a little better. Sure. But you know what? Everything else about those endings is perfectly fucking fine. Let me put this all into perspective. When Hoogs gets it and you don't, <laughs> guess whose problem that is? <laughs> yeah, for Hoogs to say, I understand why they did it, I don't bloody like it, but I understand it. If you tell me you don't understand it, go check yourself. <laughs> I also kind of have to wonder how many people after the opening onslaught who are jumping on the, the ending sucked bandwagon think it sucked because they think they're supposed to think that at this point. I think some of that is too. And just from what I'm reading and what I'm looking at on forums and blog posts, and that's what pisses me off too. I'm going to, the blog post about it because it's people that I had respected their opinion before are trying to dissect it in certain ways to lend credence to the, Bioware needs to change the ending. No, I'm sorry. That's not cool. And a lot of people are jumping on this bandwagon and trying to belong to the group. I refuse to belong to that group. I enjoyed the ending. There, I actually enjoyed every aspect of this game. I can honestly say that with a straight face. And if you didn't, fine. But you didn't waste your money. How is everything up to that ending? Did you have a good time? Did you? I'm sure you did. Did you enjoy blowing up uh, various things in space? Did you did you enjoy genocide against multiple genocide, alien yeah. races? <laughs> if you did and you invested anything more and did the side quests like, you know, you probably should have, you know, hopefully. Then you got your money's worth out of the game. And if you don't agree with the ending, too bad. In my day and age, you know how many endings our video games had? One. And you didn't like it. Yeah, fucking dealt with it. Well, so you know what? You can't even say it had an ending. The ending oh, was congratulations. Let me, let, me, let me rephrase that. If you were lucky, it had an ending. <laughs> and if you were lucky, you got to see that ending. So for all you whiners out there that are bitching about that ending, I'm sorry. Y'all are youngsters. Go check yourself, respect your elders, and sit back and take another look at it. And I hate to say it like that because I will feel very old right now. But there was nothing wrong with that ending that as far as what it had in it content wise execution is another story. But what it had content wise was perfectly fine and be happy you got to see the goddamn ending. Yeah. And just to finish off the argument as an example of how disappointed I was in the ending five minutes later, I was importing my next character. So, again, it did not diminish anything for me, despite its flaws. Staying on the Mass Effect line, though. There is something that I am very interested in coming up. Uh, Production IG, which is one of Japan's most prolific anime studios, bringing us stuff like uh, Ghost in the Shell standalone complex, uh, mm -hmm. the rebirth of Evangelion movies, some great top-tier stuff, teaming up with Funimation Entertainment, which is 
to this point been an American licensing company just bringing over the properties and handling the translations and this and that. They're actually stepping into the production side of things with this for a Mass Effect anime movie called Paragon Lost. And the story is focusing on James Vega and all the stuff he went through before he met up with Shepard. And from the time I spent on the Normandy talking to Vega, mm-hmm. despite my annoyance with the fact that I can't not hear Freddie Prinze Jr. every time I talk to him, Vega's a cool freaking character, and I would love to see more of his backstory. I'm sorry, but I was so happy with James Vega in the game. First of all, he's Latino. And don't get me wrong, there's been lots of Latinos in video game. Oh, wait, there really hasn't. <laughs> but he's a strong Latino, and he doesn't make any ifs, ands, or buts about it, but he doesn't do it in, like, the Cheech and Chong stereotypical hey, way. Hey, Shepard! <laughs> yeah, but he's he's got the stuff where, like, he's calling him jefe, he's calling him loco, He's he's got the attitude, he's got the walk, he's got, he's got that strong Hispanic male without being the total fucking douche nozzle. And that is, like, it was, I applaud the writers for that character. I really, really do. I can't wait to see his backstory. Why? He's a bad motherfucker. And he's seen some weird shit go down. And you know what? I want to see what that shit is. Mm -hmm. Uh, You ask anybody what their favorite interactions were on, on the Normandy, and you'll get several responses. You'll get, I love James talking to Cortez down in the armory. Mm-hmm. I love James talking to Garrus. I love James talking to this person. <laughs> he seems to be the focal point of all the best conversations because he is that new character that they can bring in to shed a new light on all the batshit crazy stuff that's gone on over the past couple games. And then yeah. also coming from the same uh, production team up, we uh, before then, coming up this spring, which is... Now, so very now. soon, we have another anime uh, movie called Dragon Age Dawn of the Seeker, which is following, I forget her name right now, but basically the uh, the Seeker chick that was uh, grilling Varric in Dragon Age 2. We get to see more of her backstory. And despite my issues with Dragon Age 2, the game, the Dragon Age franchise still has a lot of legs, and that's another thing I'm really looking forward to. You know, and, and I will honestly say, I curved my own criticism and I actually went back and replayed Dragon Age 2 while I was waiting for Mass Effect 3. And content-wise, story-wise, it was fine. It was actually very enjoyable. The characters were incredibly interesting. It was just the zones. That was it. Like, once I got past that, it was a pretty decent game. And, like, in this case, seeing the backstory of that character is going to be phenomenal. And I actually really can't wait for that. I don't want to get into a Dragon Age 2 argument right now, but let's just say I had issues with it beyond the actual uh, level design, I think. And the narrative, <laughs> the narrative, while the story was great, the narrative flow needed a lot of work. But Fair that, that's a discussion Fair for another day. Moving into Bioshock. I was yes. actually really excited to see that the Smithsonian Museum has this art and video games uh, exhibit set up. And among the 80 games that they selected to be there... Bioshock is one of the banner games. That's pretty damn cool for the Smithsonian to do this. Well, first of all, thank you, Smithsonian, for proving once and for all that a certain critic has his head up his ass. Video games are art. 
and these 80 video games that are featured in the exhibit um, are perfect examples of that. And Bioshock being added into it just makes sense. That very first game was so perfectly stylized, and the art assets were fantastic. Everything about it was just phenomenal. It captured our hearts and our minds and our wallets. And to see it being admitted into the Smithsonian is, for this exhibit is fantastic credit, not just to video games in general, but to the creators of that game. Mm-hmm. Pretty much all we have to say about that. Just kudos to them. Moving on, though, to Bioshock Infinite, they've basically been giving us this weekly updates on the various heavy hitters. Last week, we talked about the Motorized Patriot, and we also kind of mentioned the Handyman. Well, this past week, we actually got the full reveal of the Handyman. This is one jacked-up dude. I love how they said he's a tortured character. And they said, of course he's tortured. His heart is beating outside of his body. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was just kind of cool to see how it all sort of came together over that time, right? And from the way it was conceptualized, the way it was drawn out, the way it was actually implemented and put into the game world, and just how they, they talked about the character and how it literally just kind of grew up while they're working on it. It was just absolutely phenomenal. I, I'm i blown away like by the detail that they're giving their big nasties beyond just what the big daddies and stuff we've seen in the past. I'm super excited. Like I'm also going to be scared as shit about that handyman. Let me tell you. As if the guy with the heart beating outside of his chest and the creepy as hell Hall of Presidents George Washington assassin weren't enough, you get even more nightmare fuel with the Boys of Silence. I I can't even talk about these guys right now. I'm I'm worried. <laughs> oh man, the boys okay. The best way that I can I can say it is they're just creepy to look at right off the bat. Like you you don't even know what the hell they do to you yet. Like we have no clue what their abilities are, what they're going to do damage-wise, but they're fucking scary. And not only are they ingeniously creepy, they are roamers, right? They can appear pretty much anywhere, is my understanding. But if you played Bioshock 1, you'll remember the cameras. You'll remember the cameras that you had to get around that would alert people to, you know, your presence and cause all sorts of tomfoolery and death um these are mobile versions of that to some degree they are actively seeking you and they have no face they don't do it through eyes they have you can see their mouth is exposed and they have these giant friggin horns on their ears so they can hear better they're creepy bastards and if they do detect you all we know for certain is that at best and this is what they said at best they'll call for backup I don't know. I'm I'm going to have to shoot one at a distance. I'm going to have to snipe the the hell out of this thing because I don't want to go toe-to-toe. I, I might not even play the game. It's that scary. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And we, we also finally uh, got the reveal for the Baldur's Gate stuff we were talking about a little while back in Baldur's Gate Enhanced Edition. Yes, I'm super excited about this one personally. Um, this summer, we are getting Baldur's Gate Enhanced Edition. It is a complete reworking of the game for current day systems. Not only is it a, an update of the old classic Baldur's Gate, they're adding new content to it. On top of the stuff that's already in the game, there is going to be new original stuff injected in it to help uh, make it 
a new game on top of being a remake of the old into high definition graphics. Yes. Very, very cool. <laughs> I'm just glad it's a remake and not a new game, so I don't have to try and shoehorn something else must play right this second into my schedule. If it's a remake, I can play it here and there and be happy with it. Oh, yeah, but I'm buying it day one. Oh, absolutely. No, no doubt about it. No doubt, no doubt. All right, we got some cool Darksiders 2 stuff. Uh, this cool little developer diary talking about the actual design of the world itself. And it is just mind-blowing. The vistas and detail they have put into this game. Without a single word being spoken, without a single character on screen, the environments themselves tell a story and set the scene. I Seeing the desert of the dead, just this wasteland of despair. These crazy, huge, gothic architecture. It's ridiculous. I, I, I cannot wait for this. It was one of those things that I wasn't sure about. Like, it was one of those the titles that I was like, I don't know, I'm not entirely sure, but, oh my god, you're absolutely right. Like, just looking at this, it's just gorgeous. Yeah. Absolutely gorgeous. And just the, the levels themselves are just bigger altogether that it's setting up a much more exploration type than we had in the first game which yeah the first game had some really cool environments some really cool stuff to explore but it's pretty much hey there's a glowing thing over there let me go use my hook shot on it this you know with death and his increased traversal abilities and these huge environments it i'm gonna spend time just running around (laughs) absolutely all right and we also got amazing spider-man and (laughs) Okay, I I promise this is the last time we're going to go through this. First of all, they showed off the web web slinging segments. Does look cool as hell, admittedly. The way he's flipping through the city, it's the best traversal we've seen in a Spider-Man game to date. Although I was just hearing today they're also putting in first-person Mirror's Edge style segments, so that diminishes my interest quite a bit, as if I had any. But... A few weeks ago, I was talking about Rhino and how the way they've set up his origin as a character, it just seemed lazy to me. And how I was afraid that other characters in the game were going to show the same lack of creativity. Well, here we go with the second villain reveal, the Iguana, who essentially has the same exact origin as the Rhino. Yeah. Thanks, guys. (laughs) Way to dumb down my characters, boys. Good job. I just do find it hilarious, though, that the Iguana looks more like the lizard than the lizard does. All I have to know, or all I have to say about that is, yay for changing origins! <laughs> Calm. <laughs> Deflect it. <laughs> we're not, I'm, I'm good. We're not I'm having good. that discussion. <laughs> and then just to round out the show on some good news... We got a little more information about the upcoming Jet Set Radio HD re-release. How they (laughs) did confirm that all of the game's original music will be present in the HD release. And they're doing their best to get as much of the licensed music into the game. They uh, named a few tracks that they were able to secure. Basically all of the top and most requested songs that they needed licensing for, they managed to snag. If they didn't get the licensing for Dragula... I'll get over it. Yeah, I'll get over that one. But the fact that they're going through that much effort to maintain the audio. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. You have you you have a purchase confirmed in me. That was very awkward. 
But also at the end of this little interview we had, all right, I know they're going to hurt me again, <laughs> but I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to make my way through this. They were talking about how there's other games fans have been asking for. And the developer even stopped the interviewer mid sentence. And he's like, we know they want Shenmue and Skies of Arcadia. <laughs> First hey, of all, with good reason. Yeah, with good reason. I would really like to see a Skies of Arcadia port. Assuming it's the GameCube version, which was greatly enhanced over the Dreamcast version. I played the crap out of the Dreamcast version. Didn't get a chance to check out the GameCube version. So I would be very interested to see that evolved version with uh, more smooth transitions through the zones. Because the random battles were... Oh, they weren't very random. You could pretty much guess that you were going to get one every other step. And they also oh, yeah. added in new content. It was just a really fun RPG. I am agreed with everything you've said, sir. And then, of course, there's Shenmue, which I have gotten on record, to you no less, as saying was one of my favorite games ever. Me as well. It was the reason why I never sold my Dreamcast. And for years, literally years, anytime Sega thinks we're forgetting about them, they'll dangle that carrot of Shenmue 3. It's not off the table. It still may happen one day. It'll happen. Either I hope, I hope that'll happen, man. Come on. Either release the game or put me out of my misery at this point. At this point, I'm to, we're going to have to do the, the fanboys move. We're going to have to get a van. We're going to get a bunch of people. We're going to have to break into the studio, get the game, and see it first. We're going to have to do it ourselves, damn it. Fuck it, Sega. At this point, start a goddamn Kickstarter. <laughs> For all I care, <laughs> because this the, the story of Shenmue, if I'm remembering correctly, was originally planned to be 26 chapters where the first game was the first three chapters. And the second game, I think, brought us up to chapter nine. That leaves 17 chapters of untold story. And it was a damn cool story <laughs> the Ryo Hazuki searching for the man who murdered his father. And yeah. In retrospect, a lot of the uh, actual gameplay is very dated. I, this was, at least to my knowledge, the first game to feature quick time events, which at the time were like, oh man, this is so cool. But of course, by today's standards, we're sick to death of them, especially 10 minute long QTE segments of chasing a guy through the docks. But that being said, <laughs> it, it, it offered a lot, just like Jet Set Radio, it offered a lot of innovation for its time. And I think it would be interesting to see what modern gamers who never had a chance to experience it would think about it. And if it sells well, we might get the finally get Shenmue 3, but... Shut your mouth. Don't, don't, don't tease. Don't tease. All right. On that hopeful note, <laughs> we're going to call it an episode. Uh, so thank everybody for listening. As always, you can find us at ForTheLore.com or on Twitter at ForTheLore. And I'm assuming Roger's going to be feeling a lot better next week because I can't keep posting these shows. It's too much pressure. So until... not, I'm just going to start sending him stuff until he feels better. <laughs> you might not always be appreciated. Just throwing that out there. <laughs> so until then, we'll see you. When Mass Effect 3 released a couple weeks ago, I had to take a break from the other great game I was playing at the time, Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning. 
Several episodes back, Joe reviewed the overall game, but this week I want to take a look at one aspect in particular that stood out for me. Like many open-world RPGs, Reckoning has various factions the player can join and quest with. Some, like the Warsworn, Travelers, and Scolia Arcana, are quite similar to the standard Warrior, Thief, and Mage guilds. However, there is one faction in Reckoning that has really stood out for me so far, and that's the House of Ballads. The Summer Fae are immortal representations of life and growth. The Fae, both summer and winter, believe strongly in the concept of the cycle of life, death, and rebirth, and honor this tradition through their tellings, great stories from the past that are relived every cycle. The greatest of the Summer Fae, their most legendary heroes, are members of the House of Ballads. The House of Ballads is actually the first faction you'll come across in the game, with the very first quest you receive and the very first town in the game leading you right to their front door. Once there, you discover that an important member of the house, Sir Sagril, has been killed by the beast he was destined to slay himself. Sagril still has an important part to play in the upcoming ballads and must be replaced. The Fateless One, the player character, defeats Sagril's foe and becomes the new Sir Sagril, with the other members of the house addressing him as such. While this may seem like a minor event, it's a cause of great concern for the Fae. The whole point of the ballads is for everything to occur in precisely the same manner every cycle. Destiny cannot be changed. However, even before the intervention of the Fateless One, something has gone wrong. As the Fateless One proceeds through Sir Sagril's stories, it becomes clear that some outside force is changing the ballads to suit their own needs. As it turns out, the challenges facing the House of Ballads are courtesy of the Maid of Windermere, a powerful winter court fae who is the primary antagonist in many of the ballads. Using the power of Prismere, a magically powerful crystal, she is twisting the ballads and building a place for herself where life can exist outside of the cycle. From there, the rest plays out in a fairly standard take-down-the-bad-guy story, but it's what the House of Ballads questline represents in the larger story of Amalur that makes it so special. With it being the first faction you join, and likely the first one you complete in the game, it gives you an early look at just how wrong things are in the world. So much of the game revolves around destiny, and the House of Ballads takes it to the extreme. They not only know their entire destinies, they happily play along with them, and have trouble comprehending any alternative. The simple fact that the Maid was capable of severing the cycle represents a significant change in the Fae themselves. The Maid herself is a harbinger of the chaos that has erupted in the Winter Court, which is where the game's primary antagonists, the Tuatha Deon, are from. With the cycle breaking, the time of the Fae is nearing its end, and the time of mortals is beginning. This is the major significance of Reckoning in the larger Amalur timeline, and the fact that the seeds are planted so early in the game is what makes me appreciate the House of Ballads storyline so much. A lot of that going around. Yeah, dog dog got out of her crate somehow too. Oh. So Renee came home to garbage strewn about the apartment and you know, other various bits of 
stuff that was formerly inside the dog around, and yeah. <laughs> well, at yeah, least somebody good. had a good day. Yeah, the dog dog had a fantastic fucking time. Dog's like, ah, oh, best day ever. <laughs> yeah, seriously, the dog had troll face. It was a troll face dog day. <laughs> uh, you good to go? I am good. As soon as Renee stops scrubbing the carpet, it's gonna be a minute. There's gonna be a little <laughs> noise. For I'll give it some time. Roger's not on, babe. It's just me and Vince. He can hear you. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs>